Welcome to Empathy Media Lab's Book Talks, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we are a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with veteran nurse Timothy Sheard, who is a writer, publisher, mentor to writers, and union organizer with the National Writers Union, UAW Local 1981. And uh, Tim, you've written nine mystery novels featuring hospital custodian shop steward Lenny Moss and two standalone crime novels. And you are the founder of Hardball Press. And the mission is to help working class people write and publish their own stories. And you've helped mentor and publish over 200 authors. And today we'll be discussing your new book, How to Write Forceful Prose. So Tim, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for putting me on the show, Evan. I really enjoyed reading your book, How to Write Forceful Prose, and I'm an aspiring writer, unpublished myself, and you give me a lot of hope that anybody can write a book and a novel and a story. So could you begin by talking about why you wanted to write this book? Sure. Well, I've, as, you, as you mentioned, I've mentored hundreds of writers through the NIF Editors Union and also through my hardball press uh, as an editor. And in, in, doing, in working with them, I've realized that Anyone can tell a story. We tell stories all the time. We make up stories or, or we tell stories from work, from family, from our vacation. And so to learn to write that down and make it a compelling story is a skill that just about anybody can learn if they're willing to take the time, listen to criticism, and uh, just work the program, just work it and work it. So I wanted to put this out as sort of a distillation of the advice that I've given writers over the years to what they need to do to up their game and make a really a short piece of writing. Yeah. And it's a very accessible, quick read. I was able to read it in one, one sitting and you write writing forceful, evocative fiction and creative nonfiction is an art that almost anyone can learn. And the inspiration or idea that first emerged from that mysterious subconscious region of your mind starts you on the writing journey. So where does these ideas come from in this subconscious region? Yeah, that, well, that's one of the great mysteries, isn't it, Evan? Where, where does poetry come from? Where does music come from? Where do stories come from? I believe that all of us have this creative spark inside us. But somehow, as we grow up and we leave our childhood, we move into adolescence and adulthood, uh, we find this imagination becoming suppressed. Now, whether it's a product of education or fear of being left at or whatever the mechanism or reasons, people give up the idea that they have this imagination and that they can be creative and they can. And so I've met people and talked to them and said, tell me a story. And they tell me a story. I say, see, now put that down. You're a writer. And they, they say, I am. I said, yes. So it, it's really helping people get over their own inner inhibition, their own doubt that they have this ability and that if they work at it, because writing is work, you know, it, it never comes out right the first time. If they work at it, they will be successful in some way. They will be a successful writer. And you also write about how all fiction and creative nonfiction is dialogue. Could you explain what you meant by that? So thank you. This is one of my favorite examples. I have a brother-in-law who many years ago sent me some photographs, old photographs from Ireland where he was visiting family. And in one of them, there's an older gentleman with a pipe in his hand standing by the hearth 
and he's telling a story. And there in front of the hearth is his daughter and his grandson. And the grandson's mouth is like listening to his grandfather tell the story, just enthralled. And it reminds me that when we write a story, we're really talking to the reader. It's an implied talk. You're actually speaking to the reader through the page. And when we tell a story live, when we tell a story verbally standing there by the hearth of her at the kitchen table or at the pub, wherever we are, we don't, we don't always follow those, those rules of grammar that that high school teacher knocked into, not into our heads or into our, into our hands. You know, we have our own voice. We have our own way of speaking. And so I encourage writers to capture that voice in their writing, break the rules of grammar, but break them consistently in a way that expresses your voice. And I've had writers, once they grasp that, they've just been freed to let their, let their writing go. For me, in my journey of finding my own voice, writing journals and things like that, I think has been one of the best things for me to get my thoughts out of my head, to see them on paper outside of my head and all the mind chatter and, and everything else that ruminates and pulls you along and exercising that out. And so you can look at it a little more objectively when it's on paper and finding your own voice comes into your own life and gives you direction and everything else. So I, I really do believe that everyone should write. Everyone should read more, including myself, of course. But writing is such a important tool for thinking and for connecting with other people. And something too that was um, a little kind of surprising was you wrote, all stories are stories of mystery and suspense, and there's no suspense without danger. So could you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Sure. Well, if you look at some of the real masters of the writing game, the writing process, like Robert McKee, who, who teaches screenwriting, uh, they talk about how a, a story in its most basic form is a character that we care about who has a problem to overcome. And when you have a problem, that means you have something to lose, something to gain. And there's a danger that you won't make it. There's a danger that you're fit, that you'll fail. And that failure may be painful. You may lose money, your life, your friendship, your marriage, your job. Something could be lost that's important to you. And so there's danger in, in your quest to solve this problem. And all good stories involve taking a risk and, and knowing that you may fail and the failure may be painful. So you really have to have that in your story. There is another form of writing, a, a slice of life, a day in the life, you know, where you just follow someone in, in, in their footsteps, but there, there's, there's no conflict. There's no resolution. They don't overcome something. It's just a day in the life. It's a nice story. Nothing wrong. I'm not distant it, but most stories, the vast majority are a, pro a character with a problem and we care about them solving that problem. Yeah. And you, you write, we are all flawed characters. We all have regrets for things we did or failed to do. Let your character learn an important lesson about life and become a better person, more empathetic, more understanding, more worldly, a higher level of humanity. Since we all, I hope, strive to become better members of humanity and better custodians of the habitat that sustains us. That's beautiful writing right there. You also write, there's no such thing as fiction. So as a fiction writer like yourself, what, what did you mean by that? Well, that's not an original to me. Let me say, I, I'm, I'm carrying out a, an old tradition and, uh, among writers in the National Writers Union. So fiction, when we tell a story, first of all, we draw on our experience and we draw on the world around us and we try and capture that world in a realistic way. 
So right there, we're true to the place, the time, the dialogue, the culture. We're true to that. And the other thing is, as storytellers, we, we write about the human condition and the, the many struggles we go through in order to find our way in this world, in order to make a life for ourselves that's meaningful and satisfying. And finding that, that's a truth, that's a, that's a search for a truth. You're searching for something that all of us look for in the real world. It, it, there, there are real, you know, the search for love, the search for redemption, the search for forgiveness, the search for success. And so when we write our story, we're, we're true to what human beings constantly are looking for. And in that sense, the, the, the only difference, significant difference between fiction and nonfiction is liability. Nonfiction, you could be liable. Fiction, not, not, not so much of a worry. So it's not just that you wrote a book on how to write uh, better prose and forceful prose, but you are a very long established writer yourself. And for someone in their forties, like myself, you also started the process later in life as a writer. And it gives me great hope that I can still put out some, some publications before, you know, I leave this earth. And uh, could you talk a bit about your own process writing that first novel and how you just were able to continue on to write nine and, and moving on to your 10th Lenny Moss novel, and then the two other books as well. Well, one thing about being a writer, especially if you're going to write long form writing, or you're going to write a book, even a short story writer, if you're going to write a lot of short stories, there's a way in which you have to be very selfish. You have to say no to people and you have to say no to like social invitations. Uh, you need to find time to write and then you need time to find time to read what you wrote and to revise it because writing is a form of focused reading. You write something, you put it down, you make dinner, you walk the dog, you water the plants, then you read it and it doesn't, re it isn't quite there. So you revise it and you have to tell people, no, now when my boys were old enough, my two boys were old enough that I could park them in front of the television set and ignore them, right? When I was in my forties, I went up to the third floor of our little house in Philadelphia and I wrote in the evening and I just said to the family, this is, I'm taking the time. And eventually they got used to it. So to be a writer, you have to be a little bit selfish. You have to make the time for yourself. A good time to write is when you first wake up because uh, a great deal of creative thoughts come from dream, your dreams. So if you can get up early before work, before your chores and write at that time, for those of us who take a nap, excellent time to write when you wake up from the nap. But try and stay close to uh, your sleep your waking time, because that's where your imagination is most free. Every writer is going to be different, but when you're sitting down and you're creating that space, how, how much time would you give yourself? And, and also what's the timeline that you're looking at? Everyone's busy. And if people have other things going on, but are you someone who cuts away a couple hours a day or a few hours a week, or is it something that you're just constantly trying to, to move forward? Or I need to finish this novel by the end of September or something like that. Sure. Well, if you decided you're going to write a whole book, then what happens in my experience is the story takes you over and it's on your mind all the time. So there will be moments in the day you're at work, you're making dinner or you're bathing the kids, whatever. You'll get an idea. You get a little piece of dialogue pop up in your mind. You've got to carry a pocket notebook with you and you've got to say, excuse me, got to write this down. 
I was working in, in, in the hospitals and ICU. I was making rounds in the ICU with a wonderful doctor, Dr. Schultz, a trauma surgeon. And uh, a patient had a, a bleeding ulcer and he was bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. And the nurses were pumping blood into him, unit after unit of blood. And so a young intern asked Dr. Schultz, said, Dr. Schultz, how long are you, can they continue, uh, how long will they continue putting, pumping blood into this guy? And Dr. Schultz deadpanned, all bleeding stops eventually. So I had my notebook with me. So I said, Dr. Schultz, I love that phrase. Can I have that for my stories? He said, sure. I wrote it down. Um, so you've got to be, you know, you've got to be willing to grab the, the, the ideas, the bits of dialogue, the story turns, make a note. And then when you have some focus time, an hour, two hours, then you can pull your notes out and you can put them together. But you always want to have a writing tool. And my experience with some, some longer form narrative fiction is the characters too take a life of their own in, in the subconscious of your mind where you're, you're going along and, and you start seeing these obstacles and then what you think the character would have done when you first started the story, you realize the character wouldn't do and it, and it almost kind of guides you and takes its own shape in that, in that subconscious, beautiful creative faculty that we've been given. Oh, absolutely, Evan. You, you make a very good point. Your characters grow and develop and you learn things about them. At least it feels like you learn about them, even though you're learning from your own imagination. And they will change. They will grow. They'll have a change of heart, a change of opinion, a change of a political view. They'll have a change. And you have to accept that and let them evolve, let them, let, let them change, just as hopefully we all do. As far as you asked about a timeline, I think my first novel... It was 10 years, I don't want to discourage you. It was 10 <laughs> years from writing the first sentence to seeing the book in print on a bookshelf in Brooklyn. So that was a long journey, but you know, it took me uh, probably two years to write it that I felt it was good enough to send out. And then in this, the days before the internet, I mailed out the first three chapters, mailed it out, mailed it out, get rejected, get rejected, get rejected. And then uh, a couple of uh, editors said, oh, Mr. Sheard, you're a very good writer, but your, your hero was a hospital custodian who solves mysteries. Make him a doctor. We'll publish you. Make him a doctor. And I said, excuse me, you really don't get the point here. It's a working class story, working class character. And so eventually I did get an, uh, a publisher out of Berkeley, California, and they sent me my manuscript back, the whole manuscript, untouched. And they said, cut it by 20%. It's too flabby. So I said, okay. So I cut it and it was, they were right. It was a much better book, 20%. And in retrospect, it probably could have taken another 20 off. Because I didn't know if I'd ever write another one. So I put everything I had into it. So they, they agreed to publish it. And it was almost two years before it came into print. Because with a lot of publishers, there's a long lead time between accepting the manuscript, editing it, designing it, and market it because they have other authors in the queue who are ahead of you waiting to be released. So even though the book was, was done, it was almost two years before it was, it went, was on the shelf. You also talk about how you need to trust your editor. And for someone who's created a publishing company and have edited hundreds, thousands of stories and essays, could you talk a bit about that? Because how do you find the editor? Uh, what's the best way to go about it? Sometimes people are intimidated by editors. Sometimes people want to reject what the editor is telling them. Could you shed some light on that? Sure. Well, first of all, 
I recommend if you're a writer, you join the National Writers Union. National Writers Union, NW.org. And we have a book division and we have an online listserv, which is just an email address that people send in questions and thoughts and suggestions and announcements. And you can solicit information. And the, there are members there who can help you find a good editor. A good editor is hard to find. It's almost like finding a good partner in life. And so you don't have to accept an editor who treats you badly. I know a woman who wrote a, wrote a, wrote a book. She sent it to an editor and the woman chewed her up, you know, castigated her, told her it was garbage. Well, that's, that's a terrible editor. You know, an editor should be able to criticize you in a hope they should be able to find something good in your writing and say, now, I really like this. This was really good. This is what I think you need to work on to make it better and make it ready. So. You want to find an editor who is, gives you good criticism, but does it in a supportive way. And you can ask the editor, who have you edited? Who have you worked with? You know, give me some examples of some authors. And then you can look at their books and see if you think they're, they're, they're a good writer. An editor, okay, when you write a story, you know all the elements. You know all the characters. You know what's happening and why it's happening. The reader doesn't. The reader doesn't. The reader reads it from the outside in. You read it from the inside. And so an editor will look at it with these fresh eyes, never having seen the manuscript, and will find weaknesses in your writing that you weren't aware of. For example, it's very common to introduce a character, page 10, Evan. Then you bring it back 100 pages later. You are the writer, so you know who Evan is. You remember Evan. You created him. The reader doesn't remember. So you have to, the editor will remind you, you know, refresh the reader's what, what Evan's about, who is he, why is he there? Things like that where, 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 where the writer just, just makes a simple mistake. Pronouns. You'd be amazed how many people use pronouns where it's not clear who you're referring to. You know, Evan and Tim were in a boat. He said, who? You know what I mean? So there, there are common errors that have weaknesses that all writers have. And the editor will point them out to you again in an, in an affectionate way, in a supportive way, and it help you uh, up your game and correct your deficiencies. And in in your book is how to write forceful prose. You do even go through a little bit on the pronouns and when to use them, when not to use them, when you can even like drop even the name and and once there's a cadence established that the audience can see the dialogue going on. And I do want to take a step back. You publish so much on working class issues and labor issues, and you really have been just an incredible person with energy, a resource, a foundation for so many other people who are telling working class stories. And I think when you look at most media and most corporate media, there it's just not there. And we need to search out independent publishers like yourself to actually find these stories that aren't necessarily going to be on the New York Times book bestsellers, but they're still, they could compete with any of those books in quality. So could you talk a bit about that angle of publishing working class stories? Sure. We're independent and progressive publishers. It's very tough to find a market and audience. There are some wonderful presses out there. Akashic out of Brooklyn, wonderful imprint. Haymarket Books, Four Books, PM Press, Seven Stories. There are many independent uh, publishing companies that publish great stuff. But there's a dirty little secret in the world of journalism. If your uh, publishing company does not buy advertising in the mainstream press, the New York Times, the Daily News, the Boston Globe, 
Chicago Truth. If they, if they, if your publisher does not buy ad copy, that they will not review your. It's just it's a closed it's a closed business, you know. Unless you're, you know, Barack Obama, you've written an autobiography. If you're somebody really special, but for the majority of us, if you look at the best, if you look at the list of the best-selling books, and look at the books that are reviewed in the in the mainstream press, you'll see they're all they're all from mainstream presses with big marketing budgets, and they're the ones that buy ad copy. So. People like me, we rely on getting reviews in labor press, in the union presses, in some of the independent uh, small uh, journals, but they have a very small reach, right? They don't reach a huge audience. So it's a big challenge for us to reach the public and let them even know that Hardball Press exists. And most everyone is working class and I trying to continue to build the solidarity with the entire economy is is not just we're at our jobs and then we go and, and start consuming this here or there, but that we're all supporting each other one way or another or not supporting each other. And so trying to get through the, the gauntlet of all these big tech titans on social media that unless you give them a lot of money, it's very hard sometimes to get to the top of other people's feeds, really working on that network and, and building those local communities and becoming a voice for the working class. And I, I just love what you're doing. And I really appreciate all the collaboration I've done and all the authors I've read through that have come through Hardball Press. So thank you for all that work, Tim. Well, thank you, Evan, for your support. It means a great deal to me. I can't even put into words how much it means to me. And I do want to talk a little bit about all the music that you're creating. And we're going to put in the show notes how to find your book and, and where will people find your book on, on how to write forceful prose? Sure. Well, they can find my book at hardballpress.com. They can get it from your independent bookseller, your local bookseller, because it's available through the major uh, wholesaler, Ingram. And you can buy it from Amazon. And when I know some people say, oh, Amazon, I, I, I don't want to buy from Amazon. There's an argument to be made, but there's also an argument to be made. Okay. If you really don't like Amazon, then help them help the workers organize. Right. So for example, we're donating materials for organizing that have been used by unions for years to build labor solidarity. We're donating books. We're donating pamphlets. We're donating information. Some of my authors are donating materials. We're donating time. We're donating workshops. So. I understand your someone's aversion to Amazon, but my answer is let's organize them. Yeah. They're not going away. So we got to confront them head on. And uh, the workers who are creating so much value in that company need to get their, their piece. <laughs> so can you talk a bit about this album you're doing, this play musical you're doing? And if you would also be able to perform a little bit, that would be excellent. Well, that I, I have to... I'll warn you about my voice here, Evan, but um, that's that's kind of you to say that. When when COVID struck in 2020 and everything was clamped down, planes weren't flying. People were stuck in their houses, their apartments, couldn't go out. There was no vaccine, no treatment. People were dying. My son in New Orleans, who's a gifted musician, calls me up. He says, hey, Pop, you know, the music, musicians down here, they're all going broke. Because the clubs are closed. That's where they make their money is playing in the clubs. Would you be willing to take um, music lessons from a friend of his, from a friend of mine? He needs the money, weekly lessons. And I've been strumming this old folk guitar 
this old Epiphone. Since 1964, I've been strumming with this guitar. Never did much with it, you know, never composed spoons. Just just played Woody Guthrie and, and, and enjoyed it. So I said, sure. And somehow this wonderful teacher, Or Chevalier from the New Orleans Guitar Center, he opened up a world of music, composition, harmony, syncopation, rhythm. He taught me to listen to music, to really listen. And then once I'm listening to, to, to listen for the architecture underlying it, what makes it work and what is the journey? He always talks about music is a, is a journey to a place of tension and then a return to harmony, which is very much like a story, conflict resolution. A song is very similar. And so I wrote a whole bunch of songs for my dear coworkers at the time in the hospital where I used to work, I retired. I wrote songs for them about their struggles and their, their, their courage and their, their loss, their sacrifice. And I put a virtual band together. People would come in one at a time and they would record a track and so on. And I cut a CD and I gave them to my friends at the hospital and they enjoyed the music and it was satisfying. And along the way, I wrote a song about a young woman up in a tree, old growth tree. And she and her friends are trying to stop the loggers who are going to come in the morning, trying to stop them from cutting down the forest. So I played this song for a couple of weeks and I realized, hey, Evan, hey, this would make a great basis for a play. Good versus evil. I'll write a musical. Now, what makes me think? 70, I was seven, I'm, I was 73 at the time. I'm 74. What makes me think I have any of the, the talent or skills or whatever you need to write a musical. And I said to myself, well, why don't I try it? You know, what's the harm in trying? It's a journey I'm going to undertake. If it never sees production, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Right. And so what's the harm? So I wrote 25 songs and I wrote the script. And I hired a, a group of wonderful actors and I brought them into a studio and we rehearsed the songs. And then I asked them to read the script, the whole play and sing all the songs so I could hear it, really hear it. Cause so far I'd only heard, heard it up here. And I'll tell you, it sounded good when, when this young piano player, uh, Shiho, when she played tickled those keys and those sopranos and when they were singing those songs man it was it was a wonderful experience so i'm continuing working the play rewriting it revising revising and hopefully one day people will hear you know people will hear a young woman sitting on stage in a tree listen hear the wind call to the tree hear the rustle of the breeze in my forest canopy come and sit among the trees so you know i write these songs and it's it's exciting one thing let me answer we've talked about writing really we're talking about doing creative things creating art you have to have a dream you have to have a dream where you're you're pursuing something and it makes you happy you know it gives you satisfaction I would write a song and I'd play it for my music teacher or, and I'd say, or is the song any good? And he always said, do you like it? And I'd say, I love it. He says, then it's good. 
<laughs> so write to your own satisfaction, whether, whatever form of art you're in, write to your satisfaction and enjoy it. You know, and that's, that's half of the, half the battle for life. I have a couple more questions and I constantly think about this and part of what empathy media lab is also an event space. And I converted my living room into a music studio and I also play a lot of music and I'm working on a musical film myself with five songs as five different chapters. Great. And uh, this is a thing we, I wrote it in 2016, filmed it in 2018. So, you know, I'm, I'm on my 10 year way, but, um, finally working with the sound engineer and it's, it's getting very close. So that being said, with all the turmoil in the world and all the psychic problems with everyone and just the neuroses distorting people's ability to even cope and love and, and enjoy life after the, the last many years, but especially the last two years, art. And the creative process of each individual, I think, is more important than ever before. And how can we continue to try to expand this for the kids that are getting their art programs cut and for the adults who just are, are drying up inside and not finding anything to be hopeful for or anything beautiful in their life that can actually keep them going and allow them to achieve a higher potential than maybe they, they are currently in right now? Right. Well, I, my response is a little bit global for that. I think uh, there's a puzzle I like to give people. If you have uh, leftover slices of pizza and you get up in the morning, you have pizza in the refrigerator, slices, you want to slice right now hot, but you don't want to wait for the oven to heat up. You don't want to wait for the board broiler. You want it now. So you want to put it in your toaster, but if you drop it in your toaster, the sauce and the mushrooms, they're going to fall down in the toaster. So how do you heat your pizza in the toaster without it all falling off? Turn the toaster on its side, slide <laughs> it in. Perfect. Okay. So the, the, the point of the story is we need to think outside our comfortable box. Wherever you live, there are other people who are interested in the same arts that you are in. You can reach out to them. If you're worried about COVID, you can meet outdoors, right? And you can collaborate and work on something that you all enjoy. It's, it's, it's free, right? And it's, it's a pleasure and you make friends. If you're retired and you have a skill in the arts, go to your local elementary school, middle school, high school, daycare center, senior center, go there and share your art with them. They will, they will appreciate it and you will, you will, you will love the experience. So there are many opportunities for us. And I think, as you say, we need to develop these qualities within ourselves, within our friends and our, our colleagues and our neighbors. We need to do it as a collective. We need to do it together, especially when there's so many powerful people who are doing evil things uh, and we need to fight them. We need to organize. We need to fight them. We got to fight the fight, but we also need to keep our spirit alive. And I think working in the arts, you know, I, I hired these five actors and a piano player and a music director, and I enjoyed working with them so much. I'm going to bring them back. Because I like working with them. It's such a pleasure, you know, working with other artists. So think outside the box and, and find your, find your band. Well, with that, Mr. Tim Sheard, the publisher of Hardball Press and just came out with a very digestible, how to write forceful prose. I really appreciate everything you do. It's going to be in the show notes. I really encourage the audience to go to Hardball Press, take a look at your 
huge catalog that's continually expanding and giving uh, a platform for working class stories and, and independent writers as well. Tim, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, brother. Always, always a pleasure talking to you, Evan. Always, always. Thank you.